would take your copy of God's Word and turn to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. This morning we're going to continue our study as we've been going verse by verse through Mark. Um, we're nearing the end of chapter 10. Chapter 10 has been uh, a long chapter. It has uh, many different periscopes, many different stories contained within it. And today we're going to ask the question, who's number two? Who is number two? And I promise it's going to make sense to you in a few minutes, because right now you're like, that is just weird, right? But it's going to make sense to you in just a few minutes. But as we turn and we think, today's passage is going to have a lot to do. It's going to be prompted by seating, by where we sit. And seating's kind of a funny thing. It's something that we do often and we don't really intentionally think about. Uh, today you might have thought about it a little bit more as you were trying to spread out maybe throughout the sanctuary. Um, you know, we always have something in the back of our mind. We, we just don't randomly sit. We don't think about what we're doing, but we might think, well, I usually sit in the front, or I usually sit in the back, or this is my spot. Um, we might think, I want to sit by this person, or I might not <laughs> want to sit by this person. Of course, uh, we, we often think as we're seating places, but seating also can contain with it authority. It can contain with it honor, right? So the, uh, the father of the house usually gets the head of the table, right? So our, I think our table's just backwards because I think it's the head, not the foot. I'm on one end, so um, I, don't know, I don't know what you would call it. It's the, it's the one that's harder to get out of. So, um, but, uh, you know, we, we do think about that sometimes still, about where we sit and honor can be placed with that. I'll never forget when I lived in Nevada, Mineral County Republican Party was having... Uh, there was a governor's race in Nevada that year, and there were like six guys that all wanted the job. And they all came to our little, our little town in Hawthorne to the Mineral County Republican Party's dinner at the casino. And uh, it's Nevada. Everything's a casino. <laughs> and, um, and so we, uh, we're sitting down for dinner, and I was asked by someone if I would come and pray. And so... Um, I show up, and um, I was dressed kind of like I am now, you know, not in a suit and tie, but not, not in jeans with holes in them. And uh, I, was, I, was, I came into the room, and I was directed, go sit at the front table. Well, the front table had all six of the men who were running for uh, governor of Nevada, and I just kind of quietly sat in and listened to their conversation for a little bit. And um, it was a pretty rowdy, rambunctious, uh, spicy, language-filled conversation. And finally, uh, one, of the, one of the individuals looked at me and said, why are you at this table? And I said, I'm the pastor here to pray for you. <laughs> and uh, the, conver the, the conversation changed from then on. It was, it was quite interesting, but... Again, today our text is going to be prompted by a theme that we've seen before, and it's a theme of servanthood. It's a, it's a theme of the upside-down, backwards nature of the kingdom of God, where the world says, 
do everything you can to win. Winners come in first. The kingdom of God says don't put yourself first, but put others first. The first will be last, and the last will be first. In this text today, we're going to see something that we all struggle with, and that is pride and selfish ambition. And we see it from the disciples as they uh, want to know where they'll be seated. Two of the disciples are going to come to Jesus, and, and, and they want the seats of high position. They, they want to be up front. They want to be recognized. And, and so I called this message, Who's Number Two?, because this very setting, I was in a doctoral seminar last year, and, and one of the professors said something that's just really stuck with me. And it was this. Whenever we see the disciples arguing in the New Testament, they're not arguing about who's going to be number one. They all know that Jesus is going to be number one. We all know that Jesus is going to be number one. The question is, who's number two? Because we're fine with saying, Jesus, you're number one, but I want to be number two. In reality, when we look at this text and we see the other texts that are similar to this, what Jesus is saying is that number two are others. Don't think of yourself, even if it's to be number two, even if it's to recognize and say, Jesus, you're number one, but I want to be number two. The point that Jesus makes here and makes throughout the New Testament is that we, if we're going to be the greatest of all, we must be the servant of all. We must not be seeking and wrangling for the number two, the number three, the number four, the number five spot. Instead, those selfish, prideful ambitions should be put to the side and we should ask the Lord, who can we serve? Who can we serve. So if you have your copy of God's Word, we're going to just look through it and walk through this text today. The first thing that I want us to see here is a selfish request. There's a, a selfish request that's made. Verses 35 through 40. Let me read the text for you and then we'll, we'll break it down. It says, And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Have your kids ever come to you and say, uh, I'm going to ask you a question, you say yes. <laughs> right? I, I'm going to ask you a question. You, whatever I ask, you say yes, okay? And you're like, no, this is a setup. This is a setup. Whatever we ask for you, we want you to do for us. And they said to him, and he said, what do you want me to do for you? Verse 37. And they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. And Jesus said to him, you do not know what you're asking. The first thing that we see as we open up to this text and we look to the word here is, is this selfish request. James and John, they come up to Jesus and they, 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 they prompt him by saying, you're going to say yes, right? And he says, well, let's, let's hear it first. And they said, please let us sit one to your right and one to your left. And the picture that you have here is that they view Jesus as the Messiah. They don't fully understand what that will mean yet. 
But they're saying when you come into your glory, imagine a throne room and Jesus is on the main throne and he's number one. There's no disputing that Jesus will be number one. But who gets number two? The spot to the right. And who gets number three? The spot to the left. That's what they're asking. What they're, they're asking is, is they, they want to be number two and they want to be number three. They want to be recognized above everyone else. We've served you. We've given up stuff. You, you, come on, we deserve this, right? What it reveals in their heart is this selfish ambition. They want the, the preeminence. They want the glory and the honor to be uh, elevated. They want the proximity to be close to Jesus. They want the power, the authority. Why, why would they ask for these things? There's a few reasons I can think of. First of all, it's very interesting if you read this account from Matthew. Because in Matthew, it doesn't say that James and John are the ones that initiate this, but their mama. Their mama. She is the one that comes and asks. And if you look through Scripture, church history confirms, and there's inferences that connect this, that the, their mother is Salome. Salome is believed to be Mary's sister. So that would make James and John cousins. It would make Salome the aunt of Jesus. So she comes and she says, your cousins, they're going to have the right spots, right? You're going to take care of your family. Adds a little bit of perspective to it, doesn't it? Another reason why they could come and ask this is Jesus did promise to his disciples that, that they would have thrones, that they would have power, that they would have positions in the kingdom. You can read this in Matthew chapter 19. The problem is they didn't understand what that meant. You know, the real issue here, what really bothers me and should bother you as you read this text is, is what, what sinful pride and, and ambition does for us, and that is it obscures the main thing. It obscures the main thing. We put ourselves in the place of something else that should be the main thing. L look back at verse 32. Let me read for you again what last week was. That's in the same context here. They're on the road going to Jerusalem. What's going to happen at Jerusalem? Jesus is going to die. And Jesus was walking ahead of them and they were amazed and those who followed were afraid because they knew what lied ahead at Jerusalem. Taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was going to happen, saying, See, we are going to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death, deliver him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise. Jesus just bears out the plan of salvation and what's about to happen for these men and what's about to happen to Jesus and, and, and the hard things that he's about to go through. That's the main thing. And yet, what happens right in the next verse? Hey, can I be number two? Can I be number three? Our pride and misplaced ambition gets in the way of what God wants to do for us and through us. Do you see that? Do you see that in your own life? Do you see times where you can just flat out say, yeah, I put myself 
in the place that I shouldn't have been because I was trying to seek my own glory, not the glory of Christ. So the first thing we see here is this selfish request. We, we see what self-exaltation leading for that does. But Jesus gives a humbling response. The next thing we see is a humbling response, verses 38 through 40. Jesus tells them, he says, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized? And they said to him, We're able. <laughs> we still see the, the pride and the arrogance. We still see that they're not connecting the very things that Jesus just explained to them on the road. What's going to happen? What lies before him in Jerusalem? Jesus uses this phrase, he says the cup, he's talking about the, the experience that his life that he's going to have. He uses this word baptism. Baptism means to be submerged or immersed. What Jesus is saying is, I am about to be immersed in an experience that you cannot imagine. Are you able to do that? And ignorantly, because of their pride, they go, sure, I could do that. Jesus then gives them a humbling revelation. Look at verse 39. Jesus says to him, The cup that I drink, you will drink. The baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand, to sit at my left, is not mine to grant. But it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Jesus tells his disciples here that they will suffer. They will suffer anguish in much to the degree that He will, though not the same. And we know as church history tells us and shows us, all of these men except for John die a martyr's death. John dies in exile as an old man on the island of Patmos. They all give their lives for the faith that they will proclaim, for the gospel that they will tell, for the experience that they are about to see as they go into Jerusalem. But Jesus gives us something very interesting here. He tells them that the positions of his right and his left, the number two, the number three, if you would, that's not what he's there to grant. That the Father knows those positions, the Father knows those places, and I think what he's doing in a very uh, Hebrewic way is saying this, you're not to be concerned about what position you're going to end up in. Because we can, we can have this righteous, selfish ambition sometime. We'll even take the words of Jesus and say, well, I'm going to go serve these people so that I get another jewel in my crown. Do you see that? We take something that's supposed to be good and, and we can turn that even into our own selfish ambition. What Jesus says here is something that he says in other places, I think specifically of the parable of the talents, if you remember that. The parable of the talents is that a, a man goes away and he gives one worker five talents, one worker uh, three talents, and one worker one talent. And he tells them to be wise with it, to invest it, and that he'll return, and he returns, and the one with five made five more. He invested it wisely. The one with Three, brought three more and invested it wisely. And the one with one, he took the talent, he took the, the, the substantial amount of money that Jesus or that the, that the man had given him, 
he, he takes it and he hides it in a hole so he doesn't lose it. And he says, oh, look, I gave it. Here you go. And the point of that parable is this. Every one of us are given different callings, different giftings, different abilities. And with that, God expects different things from us. The question is not that you look around and see what other people have and what they can do and what their talents are, but are we seeking to be faithful with what God has called us to? Are we seeking to be faithful in the small things or are we driven by selfish ambition? We see a selfish request. We see a humbling response. We see a prideful reaction. So far, only two of the disciples have gotten involved on this. It's time for uh, some more. Look at the text in verse 41. When the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. So word gets back that uh, the two have asked to be number two and number three. And James, and then it get, the word gets back to the other ten. And now they're angry. Why are they angry? Where did they want to be? Number two. Who's number two? I'm number two. No, I'm number two. I gave up more than you. I should be number two. See, it's all making sense. Who's number two? They're all fighting about who would be number two. Who would sit at the right? Who would be number three? Who would sit at the left? But ultimately, we know they're, they're all arguing about the right side, the number two position. You see this prideful reaction and it's interesting here. They're angry. They're indignant at each other. You know, that can happen so easily between the people of God. We can look at what God has blessed another person with, the gifts, the talents, if you would, that he's given to someone else, the places that he's placed them, and, and, and we can become indignant. Oh, I'm as faithful as they are. I know I've served more than that. Why, why haven't you done that to me? And you can even become very indignant against that person, can't you? People can easily offend you, not even knowing. And you can harbor that for a long time. Instead of living in grace, you hold on to that. That one little thing that really in reality was so small, you hold on to so tight. That's selfish ambition as well. Why am I not number two? How dare they? See, a selfish request, a humbling response, a prideful reaction. Jesus corrects this with a rearrangement of their worldview. A rearrangement of their worldview. Verses 42 through 45 is really the, 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 the heart of what the text is getting here. Jesus corrects them and Jesus calls them to himself and he says to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. But let it not be so among you. You see, this is what the disciples were trying to do. They were trying to imitate the world where I get the power, I get the authority, and now you serve me because I'm number two, and you're number not two or one. 
That's what they're trying to do. That's why they're mad at each other. That's why they're jockeying and wrestling for position. Because they're ruled by this pride. Who's going to be the best? It's going to be me. I'm going to be the best. I'm going to give up more. I'm going to serve more. I'm going to do this. I'm going to be the best. I want to be number two. Jesus tells them that this isn't going to work. This kind of power grabbing, this kind of uh, domineering over each other, it shouldn't be among brothers and sisters in Christ. And even within churches, unfortunately, from time to time you have this. You have individuals who try to assume power and authority and try to wield it over others and try to wiggle into places of leadership so that they might be in charge and rule. And there's churches that I know of even within uh, near to here, within our county, that have been ruled by one or two families, by one or two people. You know how you can often tell that church? Look how many pastors they go through. You see a church that goes through pastors every six months, you've got to stop and say, what's going on? That's not the way that it should be. It's not always that case, but again, if you see it over and over and over again, it happens. The Bible talks about this in 3 John verses 9 and 11. It talks about a person named Diotrephes. And he was overruling the church, not because he was a godly man, but because he had assumed power. And he was leading the church into sin, and he was running away God's people. Jesus wants the disciples to know that that's not the way that it should be in the church. We shouldn't be so concerned about our own selfish ambitions, our own power, our own authorities. And so Jesus gives the expectation that we should have. And I want you to, I want you to focus. I want you to, to focus in here. Because this is really where the jewel of this whole passage is laid out. And you've got to pay attention or you'll miss it. Verse 43. But it shall not be so among you. So what should it be like? Right? Jesus says it shouldn't be like the world. It shouldn't be like you're trying to rule over each other because you're greater than your brother. It shouldn't be like that. So what should it be like? Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Jesus uses two different words that would have been understood within uh, that culture. They would have been understood within that day and that time. First, he calls and he uses servant. It's the same word that we get deacon from. He says you must be a deacon. You must be one who, the, the word literally means a, a table waiter. You must be one who would serve the food, not the one who would get the food served to you. And then, if that's not enough, he says, if you would be first, you must be not just a table waiter, a slave, a doulos. You must be the slave of all. You have no rights of your own. 
You give up everything that you would lay claim to because you are the servant of all. And we, we have done a horrible job in translating this because the word slave carries with it so much baggage in our culture today. But we miss the point so often in the New Testament that the people who identify themselves as Christians, they call themselves a slave to Christ. It was a day and a culture and an age where they knew what slavery was because it was rampant within the, the world of the New Testament. And Christians saw themselves. Christians identified themselves. They, they lifted up and championed when they talked about themselves to say, I am not my own. I'm Jesus's. He's my Lord. And that's the way they viewed themselves. As though they had given all of their rights, all of their ambitions that they might serve Jesus. Isn't that pretty amazing? If you were to describe yourself, if you were to describe your Christian life, would one of the top things that you call yourself, would one of the top desires that you would have to be a servant? I want to be a servant. I want to be a slave. I want to be a slave to Christ. I want my sinful ambition, my will, the things that would exalt Bob to make him think that he needs to be number two to be laid aside. I want to be faithful in whatever God gives me. I don't want to look around at others and what God has given them and the talents and the opportunities that they have and, and be jealous of that or hateful towards that. I want to march forward wherever God calls me in His power, by His Spirit, in His grace, and serve Him. That's what we want. Jesus goes on. He not only tells us that the expectation before us is that we should be the servant, the slave, but he talks about his example. Look at verse 45. Mark 10, 45 is an incredibly important verse to the book of Mark. Most will say that this is the key verse in Mark. This defines all of the book of Mark. Is that Jesus is made out as the suffering servant. Verse 45 says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Notice how it sets it off here. For even, for even, Jesus Christ. Think about Mark and all the glories that he has presented about Jesus. He has made the case that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is divine. He has made the case, as we've read through Mark, that he is the Messiah, the anointed one that's prophesied and foretold. He's made the case of all of these things. Jesus Christ, if anyone should come to the earth and be served at, at any time, it should have been Jesus. And yet Jesus himself comes to the earth humble and lowly as a servant. As a servant in how he acted towards others, even on the night that he's betrayed, he will wash feet. And ultimately... Like a slave. He takes the place of the slave and he goes to the cross where he dies that he might make, as Mark calls it, a ransom for many. An exchange. And that's what Jesus did 
on the cross as he exchanged his perfect sinlessness for our sinfulness. That atonement might be made. That God might be able to look upon us and forgive us for our sins because Jesus Christ has paid the debt that we could not bear. Even the Son of Man, even Jesus Himself is to be known as a servant. The, the paradox of the Christian life is this, that the, the way up is down. The servant is the one to be honored. It's Jesus' point here. So as we close, let me ask you this. Are you a servant? And if you're a servant, then you should be serving. So where are you serving Christ? Where has He called you? Where has He gifted you? Perhaps you say, there's, there's things that I know that I need to do to serve Christ. I don't know how to discover that, but I want to figure it out. I want to serve Him. We want to be able to do that. We want to help you to be able to do that, to find a place of service here within the body, to find a place of service within the life and the, the, the place where God has you. Just over these next few weeks, one of the ways that you can serve is if you're well and you're able to serve others, to find those who need help, those who may be quarantined, those who may need an extra roll of tissue that you can give. How can we be servants? As I read this text, and I've, this thought has been on my heart for over a year now, I want to stop thinking of myself in elevated ways. Not with degrees behind my name. Not with positions that I hold. Not with experiences that I have. But I want to think of myself as I'm Bob Wilson. A sinner who Jesus has saved. And now I'm his servant. Lord, where would you have me go? I want to serve you. That's the basic of what it is. He'll call all of us to different places to serve. But if you know him, you're his servant. As we close today, I want to challenge you. How can you serve? How can you better serve Christ? What are areas that he's called you to that you've served? And, and maybe you're serving in them right now. And God bless you. Thank you so much. Maybe you know there's other places. Maybe you used to serve in one capacity and things have changed. But there's still a way that you can serve. I still remember Miss Virginia Bohannon here at the church. She told me one time, she said, Pastor, I used to do all kinds of things. But now I just pray. She said, but I pray a lot. She said, that's my job for the church. And that dear saint, she would pray. She would pray. Whatever it is, we can serve each other. We can serve Christ. Let us get rid of selfish ambition. Let us stop asking about who's going to be number two. Let us look and see how we can be the servant of all. As we close, again... Are you a servant? Are you a servant in Jesus Christ and that you know Him as your Savior? Have you confessed your sin and trusted in Christ? Are you a faithful servant? Has He called you to something? Spend a moment and pray. How might you respond to this word? How might you 
not pursue selfish ambition, but put others ahead of yourself and be a servant. Pray with me. Father, we